Isaiah 33. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us strength and wisdom to come through this day knowing that, Lord, whether we've had to come through storms or trials or even clear, safe waters, we have done so by your grace and mercy. And, Lord, we thank you for your loving care for us. And that we can cast our cares upon you because you indeed care for us. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to these words this evening and our hearts as well. Be with the Garcia family and and all those who are mourning uh, Maria's loss. Lord, we pray that in these times and these services, Lord, first of all, that your word would go forth and that, Lord, your spirit would move mightily upon the hearts of those who are lost and need you. And that we would see, Lord, how great you are in the midst of our own pain and suffering. And how desperately those who are without you need you to be their Lord and Savior. Grant, Lord, the family continued strength and peace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Isaiah 33, beginning at verse 1. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. And you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. And by the way, that should read actually, be our arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nation shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. We've now arrived at the sixth and the final woe in this section that began back in chapter 28, and while the rest of the woes that we have looked at between then and now, were primarily directed to Judah and Jerusalem. And by the way, the first woe in chapter 28, verse 1, was actually to Samaria as well. This particular woe, this particular call for judgment, as it were, this particular awakening to destruction that is to come, is aimed at the Assyrians due to their treachery against Judah. Now, it is particularly directed toward Assyria, but it can be directed toward anybody who goes against God's people treacherously. And in this chapter, we see immediately a biblical principle abiding true, one that applies to nations as well as to individuals. Again, listen to one verse 1. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, you who deal treacherously, they that have not dealt treacherously with you. Though they have dealt treasures, when you cease plundering, you'll be plundered. Okay, get the get the principle here. Here's the principle. The principle is found in Galatians chapter six verse seven, when Paul says, "Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap." That's the principle. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Those who have inflicted their vengeance without provocation against Israel. In other words, they have inflicted their vengeance without having been provoked in any way by Israel. So, 
those who have aimed and, and thrusted their vengeance without provocation against Israel will in turn be visited with judgment even after the Lord has used them for the chastening of His people. One need only look at the outcomes of great empires such as Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and the Romans, the Roman Empire. And in more modern times, countries like Spain, Russia, Poland, Germany. This is what nations in the future have to look forward to in their oppressive dealings with Israel prophetically. Now, the, 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 the uh, nations I mention here, uh, Spain, Russia, Poland, and Germany, each one of them in some way suffered for their treatment of God's people in modern times. Spain through inquisitions. Russia, Poland, through some of the pogroms in Eastern Europe. And of course Germany with the Holocaust. So you understand. This is what nations in the future will have to look forward to in their oppressive dealings with Israel prophetically. In the book of, uh, of Revelation, the Apostle John, in talking about the Antichrist, writes this, in verse, uh, uh, Revelation 13, verse 10, he says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. Again, the same principle applies. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the, patient, the patience and the faith of the saints. A life, you see. A life of treachery, a life of betrayal, a life of destruction will always come back on a person. And so we need to let God take care of situations. We need to, take, we need to let God take care of all situations. We need to let God handle things. You know how sometimes we say, well listen, I'm just going to let God take care of things, but if somebody does anything to me or to my family, I'll handle it. You've probably heard that. I, don't, I look around, I don't think any of you would say that. Or maybe so. But God is saying no. Rather than we trying to avenge and handle matters ourselves or, or get to the point of fighting fire with fire, as the case may be, we would be wise in heeding the advice of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, when he says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, Vengeance is mine. Therefore, and notice what we're to do. If we do anything, listen, what do we do? Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, some people think that that means, you know, you give him a drink and you got him nice and calm and easy. Then you come and just pile these coals upon his head. No! By the way, this is a proverb here from Proverbs 25. Not what he's saying. <laughs> you, know. you know what it's saying? It's even going beyond the love of the world into the love of God towards someone, into the mercies of God. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If you're thirsty, give him a, a drink. And, and so do you, and you're heaping coals of fire on his head. They, they, they used to carry, by the way, this is a an old, old, ancient thing. But they, they used to have uh, to carry a lot of stuff, you know, from one city to another or one house to another. They didn't live all, sometimes all that close. And some people who had fire, you know, they had to go and, and get the coals. But they had to also carry water and, and whatnot. So they, would, they worked something out where they put this thing on their head that had these little places. I mean, it was pretty worn, I'm sure. So you had to really move quick. But you could carry those coals to your. You, you were you were being hospitable to them to give them some of your coals so they could have a fire. You were going beyond. Remember, Jesus said, if you if if you go with somebody one mile, if they go with you one mile, you go with them two. It's always going beyond. You see. Look at verse twenty-one of Romans 20, uh, twelve. He says, "Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." 
I wish more people would really listen to this in the church today. I wish more people would really take to heart the fact that we're not to be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. When somebody does something to us, we're to, we're to remember that God told us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers here. And if somebody has done something to us, we are not to turn around and all of a sudden say, Oh yeah, well if you did that, look at this. I want to do the same thing to you. That's evil, folks. We may believe that in theory, but we need to believe it in practice as well. Well, we got into some very practical things right away, and uh, we need to move on. But uh, with all this in mind, I want you to consider Assyria here. Assyria that was led by Sennacherib, who even when King Hezekiah tried buying him off, which you can read in 2 Kings 18, verses 13 through 15, he broke the agreement and invaded Judah anyway. Proving the fact that he was a treacherous tyrant. He was a thief and he was a traitor. And the Lord promised to judge him. He had destroyed others, so now he would be destroyed. As he had dealt treacherously with nations, so they would deal treacherously with him. Interesting end Sennacherib comes to in his own life. Killed by his own sons, family. Brings us up, uh, or this brings up one last thought here on this particular matter, and that is that the Lord has every right, listen carefully, the Lord has every right to deal with us as we have dealt with others. The Lord has every right to deal with us as we have dealt with others. How do we know this? Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Now understand what he's saying when he says judge not. He's saying that uh, we're not to be measuring people up with our own kind of measuring stick. Because if you'll notice in the next verse he says, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now we are to judge, we are to judge. there's certain things that we are supposed to judge. This is not an excuse for somebody who wants to live a, 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 a sinful life and say, well, you know, if you tell them, listen, you know, you need to get your life right. Oh, you're judging me. Doesn't the Bible say judge not lest, uh, lest you be judged? That's not where you applied this. It's a matter of judging according to the measure that's, that you judge somebody else. With what judgment you judge, you'll be judged that way. If you judge a certain way, you'll be judged back, you know. So with that in mind, we move on and we come to the prayer then of this godly remnant when the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrians. And so God has placed his woe upon the Assyrians and said, you know, as you've dealt treacherously, you'll be dealt with treacherously. And then in verse 2, we hear this prayer. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. As I mentioned before, the word there is also the word our, you know, the Hebrew language is one little, you know, jot or tittle, you know. Uh, some translations, the uh, Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, translated that word as our, because it fits the context of it. They're praying unto God, the remnant of, of God is praying to him. Be our arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. The prophet Isaiah had promised that God would be gracious to them if they would just trust Him. If you go back to chapter 30 for just a moment and remember the promise that was given. Notice in verse 18, Therefore the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you, and therefore He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. For the people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. There's a promise here. And, he's, and, and of course the prophet said, listen, God will hear you if you wait for him. He'll wait for you. And so a godly few no longer look to the Egyptians. A godly few no longer look to themselves. They were now looking to God and saying, oh God, have mercy. Oh God, be gracious. Lord God, we're waiting. Let be our arm. 
Be our strength. Be our salvation in time of trouble. We're not looking to Egypt anymore. We're not looking to their horses and their chariots. We're not looking to uh, even to ourselves, whatever strength we might think we have. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes here about this passage. He says, never underestimate the power of a praying minority. Never underestimate the power of a praying minority. What did Jesus say? Where two or more are gathered. Even where two or three are gathered. He says, there I am in the midst. Never underestimate the power of people that pray with all of their heart unto God in obedience to God. You know, this prayerful cry, by the way, is both a very near fulfillment for them at that time in in Isaiah's time, and it was also a far fulfillment prophecy, something that will happen during the times that are to come where the Antichrist will have deceived the nations. And once again, the people who have been deceived because they were looking for a Messiah, they would accept anyone now. Think about Israel today. Many of them will say to you right now, You know, if somebody comes and offers us peace, we'll take it, no matter who it is. And that's sad, because that's saying that with blinders over their eyes, because their Messiah has already come. But He's coming again. But He's coming again. And then we go back on to the prayer in verse 3. It says, At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. And your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as as the running to and fro of the locust. He shall run upon them. Let me first of all say that it is a fallacy. It is a fallacy and it is really heresy to believe that we are to have faith in faith. Some of you may have heard some preacher on TV tell you that we need to have faith in faith. I've heard it for almost 35, 36 years. Because you see, this, of course, is one of the key tenets of the word of faith or prosperity movement or theology. We're to have faith in faith, as if faith is something. But we need to have something real solid, you know. Trust we are to have, but in whom? Our faith is towards someone. That is, toward God, you know. No matter what their mouthpieces may say, faith is still dependent upon God. That's the whole thing. Faith is dependent upon God. In other words, faith counts on God. Faith counts on God. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and verse 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. By the way, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. In other words, he is declaring things that will happen. We can have faith in that. But that counts on God. We have to, our faith has to count on God. Our faith is dependent upon God. He declares the end from the beginning, which means that he knows what's going to happen before it does. That's what prophecy is. That's what we've been talking about for many, many weeks and months. The fact that God already knows what's going to happen. We have to trust that. And we are beginning to trust it by the things that we see going on in this day and time in which we live and in the Middle East, which is the epicenter of all that is taking place. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you really want to understand what faith is, you have to understand that it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We can trust God in that. It is God who needs to be trusted. And, and so, when Isaiah says here in our text, When you lift yourself up, the nation shall be scattered, he is in effect saying that God's people have a trusting, confident expectation in the Lord. My trust is in God, that when he says, I'm going to lift myself up, he's going to lift himself up. And when he lifts himself up, then the nations are going to be scattered. So our faith and trust is in that. We are dependent upon God being faithful to his word. It is still the voice of the remnant proclaiming the power of Almighty God and His intervention on their behalf. They are trusting that God is going to do what He has said that He is going to do. 
Now the important thing again is, can we get beyond theory into the true practice of trusting in God? We say we trust God, but then if He does something, we say, I can't believe it. But He said He was going to do it. Why can't you believe that He's faithful to His Word? Why can't we just believe that God is faithful to do the things that He says He's going to do? So the plunder itself here, back in, in, in verses 3 and 4, the plunder itself will be as total and permanent. In other words, what God is going to lay out when He, when he destroys Assyria, when He when he deals with this treacherous country and nation, that plunder that, that uh, will be left will be as total, will be as permanent, and will be as irreversible as locusts destroying everything in their path. And this is why he mentions locusts and caterpillars there. When they start doing their thing, man, they just lead destruction, don't they? And that's what's going to happen to the plunder that's left by the enemy against God's people. Verses 5 and 6 says, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. And the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is His treasure. Let me read that a little better here so I can get to verse 6. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of your salvation. Then the fear of the Lord is His treasure. Make sure we get the right sentence structure here. Now, verses 5 and 6 may very well have been a message to King Hezekiah. We mentioned him earlier. Hezekiah was trying to bribe Sennacherib. And he had done a foolish thing in doing that. He had done a foolish thing in bribing Sennacherib with the temple treasures. I mean, with a temp, with a treasure of of, of of the temple of God. And while we're sure that the Lord forgave him, and and here reminded him that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. This is another opportunity to consider that unbelief, unbelief, will always look to human resources and wherewithal for help, but faith will always look to God. You see, Hezekiah got into that trap of not trusting God. He didn't believe that God could could deliver him, so they had to do what? They went and looked for help from where? Egypt? And then what else? Well, then they went to their own treasury and they said, Well, listen, let's, let's bribe him. Let's give him our treasure so he won't destroy us. Unbelief will always look to human resources. Unbelief will always look for for the resources being solved by some flesh, by something, by some group of people, by something that man has done. But faith will always look to God. Faith will always look to God. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 10, most of you know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. You know, here's, here's another issue here. Here's another place where we can actually ask ourselves, am I just believing in theory or am I going to believe in practice? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, not in some of your ways, not, not in, in some of your ways acknowledge Him. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And he shall direct your paths. God, you know, that tells us that God can and God will direct our paths if we trust him. And I believe that the paths of the Lord are more trustworthy than, than the paths that we try to carve out for ourselves. Would, would you not agree? That when God lays out the direction he wants us to go, That once we find ourselves on that path, cut out for us, we realize that that is the way that that is best for us. And by the way, if God does that, that does not mean that He doesn't allow certain things to happen to keep you on that path. 
But God doesn't at times allow certain things to happen in your life that are trials, that are testings, that are even temptations at times allowed so that you can say, you know, I know that this is where God wants me to be and I'm going to stay here because I know what the end is going to be. Blessing. The blessing is obedience. And in obedience comes the blessings that God will give us when we endure to the end on the path that He has carved out for us. Do not be wise, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will overflow with new wine. Testimony after testimony after testimony can be given in this room for those who have obeyed the Lord in those things and realize that God is true when He says, when you give me your first fruits, I will give you your increase. I'm taking care of you. I've talked to people that have said, you know, I wasn't giving to the Lord very well. And then I began to learn to see that it was, it was important to give unto the Lord. When I started to give to the Lord, I couldn't figure it out, how it all worked out. You know, we can't. It's God's doing. That's why, that's why it says, hey, honor the Lord with everything you have. And you'll be filled with plenty. You don't have to ask why or how. If it's happening, then be good stewards of that. And thank Him for it, you see. But you can trust God in that. He said, I'll open the windows of heaven if you'll just trust me. It's a lot of practical things we're dealing with, aren't we, tonight? The second part of verse 5, getting back to our text in Isaiah 33. The second part of verse 5 in our text is a prayer in anticipation. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. It's, it's, it's a prayer in anticipation. It says He has filled, but they know that it has, you know, there, there's no time right now that it has been totally filled with justice and righteousness until when? Until Jesus comes back. So this is a prayer in anticipation. But, listen, we don't have to wait until... He fills Zion with justice and righteousness to thank Him for it. And that's what they were doing. They were thanking God for justice and righteousness, which had yet to completely come. So even for us, we can thank Him now for what He is going to do when He comes to reveal Himself as Lord and Savior and Messiah. So that's another practical thing about giving thanks to God for the things that you have and the things that He will provide in the days to come. Verse 7 now, Isaiah 33, Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lay waste. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness in Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Those places mentioned, Lebanon, of course, they're the cedars of Lebanon, the great forests of Lebanon, uh, the, the, the roses and the, the flowers of Sharon, uh, Bashan and Carmel, the fruits, the, the trees of bearing much fruit. What he's saying is that, that uh, you know, it's looking at this, this passage is looking at, at the time during the Assyrian invasion when things were appearing pretty grim for Judah especially when their bravest soldiers wept in seeing one city after another fall to the enemy. Verse 7, Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The Jewish ambassador wept because the compromise accomplished nothing. What compromise would that have been? More than likely it would have been the compromise where they were uh, speaking uh, uh, the negotiations with Egypt. It, it accomplished nothing. The compromise they were trying to have with 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 other powers rather than with God. The roads were extremely dangerous, it tells us. And their fields and their orchards were all ruined. 
What a picture you see. What a picture of the desolation that shall come in the last days because this was not only a near fulfillment prophecy but a far fulfillment prophecy. A picture of the desolation that shall come in the last days when the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel is broken. Now, those of you who are here when Rich Freeman did his uh, uh, conference on, on, on prophecy, remember Daniel 9 verse 27. Where it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, being, speaking of the Antichrist. The one week is a week of years, so seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. But notice this, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Desolation. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So desolation is going to come again to the land. And even though the Lord has, has, has showed us that He is able to bring His people back into the land of, of, of Israel, and that He is able to bring fruit once again into the land, and all of that is fulfilled prophecy in the book of Isaiah, which we'll get to pretty soon. Even still, when the Antichrist comes to make this covenant of peace with them, there is going to be a time when he goes back on his word. That's the treachery of the Antichrist. That's the treachery of the beast. And the land will be desolate once again. And it would appear that there would be no way of escape except for one thing. God. There seems to be no escape except for God. And His faithfulness. Look at verse 10 of our text. Now I will rise. You know, we could spend an hour, I'm not going to, but we could spend an hour on that phrase alone. Now I will rise. Because that answers the question that so many people have asked down through the ages. Oh God, when? When are you going to deliver us? When are you going to have mercy on your people? When are you going to destroy the wickedness of the enemy? When, Lord? When, oh God? When? <laughs> God says, now. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. This is a reminder of how God is in control of all things. God is in control of time. God is in control of what takes place in time. The, 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 uh, the psalmist in Psalm 31 verse 15 says, My time is in your hands. It is something that we as believers in Jesus Christ need to give to God. It is our time. It is our treasure. It is our talent. We are to give all of that to God. But time is in His hands. We could speculate about what's going to happen in the near future. What's going to happen uh, because uh, so and so, uh, uh, this nation and that nation is having this kind of a... Uh, you know, covenant with this nation or that. You know, we could, we could speculate at best when certain things are going to happen between now and the coming of the Lord. But for, one, for, but for sure, God knows. And certainly when the Scripture says, no man knows the day or hour, God still knows. God knows. God has time in His hand. And He says, I will be exalted now. Now I will lift myself, myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burning of lime. Like thorns cut up that they shall be burned in the fire. Like thorns cut up they shall be burned in the fire. Hear you who are afar off of what I have done. And you who are near acknowledge my might. The Assyrians you see 
When it says that, uh, he, uh, you know, God is saying to them, you shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble, the Assyrians must have been pregnant. Pregnant with all kinds of tactics, pregnant with all kinds of devices and plans to conquer Jerusalem. And I say this only because Isaiah has drawn some interesting images for us as God rises to bring judgment on them. But instead of giving birth to their schemes, you see, they would only bring forth chaff and straw. Something that we would best know, like Paul tells us, or as Paul said in the Scriptures, wood, hay, and stubble. That's the stuff. You know, when you compare wood, hay, and stubble to gold, silver, and precious jewels, there in 1 Corinthians, when you compare those things, guess what stuff burns up quickly? Wood, hay, and stubble, right? So it's really nothing. It's just the, 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 uh, just what's left over, you know. If you're into woodwork, you know, and you're making really neat things with a lot of wood, you know, there's a lot of... of wood shavings and stuff, and I'm sure you can use it for one thing or another, Another, but, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it, it, you can't build anything with it anymore, so you have to use it for something else, or else it just gets thrown away or gets burned up. Eventually, it just gets burned up. So in other words, their plans would amount to nothing. God's judgment comes like a fire, and all the worthless deeds of man will be immediately and violently burned in that fire. And then verse 13 would be immediately fulfilled in that the amazing deliverance of Jerusalem would be spoken of far and wide. And even the Gentile nations had to recognize and concede the greatness of the Lord God of the Jews. Here you who are afar off of what I've done and you who are near acknowledge my might. It is even thought by some that Psalm 126, which may have been composed by Hezekiah the king, grew out of this experience. Notice Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. That's testimony, you see. They were giving testimony of the great things that God has done. And you know, we ought, not, uh, we, we ought to do the very same thing. We ought not to be silent about the great things that God has done. And I oftentimes wonder, if I look at certain people who say they're believers in Jesus Christ, and, and, and they look like, you know, they, they've just gone through a terrible time, terrible experience, and I guess we've all been there where we've all had struggles, you know, and, and, and trials and certain circumstances have happened. But, but, you know, there's a difference when, when we realize that God is with us through those things. There's a peace. There's a joy. You know, joy, remember, joy and happiness are not the same. There's a peace. And there's a joy that's on our hearts, knowing that we're true. we can trust God through the troubles and trials we're going through. But there are some people that just look, they look like, you know, their whole life has been defeated. I said, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? If you are, trust that God has not finished with you yet. And He loves you so much. And the very fact of the matter is, you have got to have something that you can say God has done great things in your life about. Did God change you from death into life? Did He change you from despair into, into the, the glorious uh, uh, aspect of His light, into His kingdom? Well, yes. Well, that's something that's great, isn't it? It's a great thing to be saved. It's a great thing to, be, to have been delivered from from the bondage of sin and death. Amen. I mean, isn't it a great thing to be saved? That's a great thing. And no matter what else is going on, listen, God has done great things for you. Again, can we get beyond theory into practice? One of the effects that the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem had on the Jewish people it was that of bringing fear and conviction to them. By the way, remember, I'm not going to read it again, but we've been reading that quote you know, from, from Isaiah 36-37, but where, where it tells us that the Assyrians lost 185,000 just like that. You know, God did it, right? And then they saw, the, they saw them. 
Well, what effect does that have? That's the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem. What effect did that have to the people of, of, of Israel and of Judah in particular? Look at verses 14 through 16. Here's the effect. The sinners in Zion are afraid. You know, you might think, well, what does that mean? No, that's a good thing. We need to fear the Lord. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearlessness has seized the hypocrites. I'm sorry, fearfulness. Ah, fearfulness. <laughs> fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Fearfulness. Who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, you know the answer to that. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. It is important to remember that the Lord does not set us free from sin so that we would then be free to return to our sins. Can I say that again? I don't think it's that confusing, but I think it's important to get. It is important to remember that the Lord does not set us free from sin so that we would then be free to return to our sins. That is what the fear of the Lord is all about. If we fear God, if we reverence God, if we respect God, if we have an awe and a wonder toward God, we won't want to do those things that would dishonor the God that has saved us. That is what the fear of the Lord is. The proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is when we can begin to see how God loves us so much that He's given us everything that we need for godliness, righteousness in this life and in the life to come through Jesus Christ. He sets us free from sin so that sin will no longer have dominion over us. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 6, verses 7 through 14. He says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, but you should obey it in, uh, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's a lot of stuff to say there, but I'm just saying that what it says is that you, are, you have been set free from sin, so you are no longer letting sin have dominion over you because you died with Christ. Now in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, it says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? What's the answer to that? No one. If the Lord marked iniquity, if every one of our sins, if, if, if God was not the God who had forgiven our sins through the blood of Christ, we would be in trouble, right? Who could stand? Not one of us. Why? Because even right now, we're sinners. But notice the next phrase. But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. That's what I wanted to bring you to. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God forgives, therefore let us fear Him in reverence, in awe, respect, and in the life that we live, let us live it as unto God, as dead to sin and alive in Christ. You see, getting back to the Jewish people that saw this, 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 uh, this judgment, of God. How could those Jewish people in Jerusalem 
when seeing the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers slain in one night by the Lord Himself, how can they not realize that the God of Israel was a consuming fire? That's why the devouring fire is mentioned here. How could they not realize that the God of Israel was a consuming fire? Could they themselves be saved simply by being in Jerusalem? By, oh, well, you know, it's kind of like, uh, remember Tag, uh, or, 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 or what is it, hide and seek? You know, there was always a home base, and you had to run. If you were on a base, you know, you were saved. But you weren't saved just because it's Jerusalem. We find that out later, even though the Lord delivered Jerusalem then. He doesn't deliver it later when, when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes. You have to fear the Lord. You have to live with the fear of the Lord in your heart. Not in this fear of terror, but in this fear of awe and respect. Yes, God is a consuming fire, isn't He? Hebrews 12, verse 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. You can read it yourself. But in verse 15, we find a description of the type of person that the Lord is going to bless, that the Lord is going to acknowledge, and the Lord is going to accept. And notice in verse 15, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. These qualities only come as a person trusts in Messiah, as a person trusts in Jesus Christ and grows in His grace. It doesn't come because that's what saves you. It comes because you have trusted in God. You have trusted in Christ. You see, too many people then and now, then with, the, with the, uh, uh, those living in Judah, and even now those who say they're believers in Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Too many people then and now have hearts that are far from God because their religion is only a matter of externals, only a matter of external ceremonies, only a matter of external uh, uh, circumstances and whatnot. In other words, the rites, the rituals, the ceremonies. It's all in that and not in the personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's why back in Isaiah 29 verse 13, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. In other words, they're not fearing God, they're fearing whatever man is saying to them to do. If you don't do this, this, and this, and this, if you don't say this prayer, if you don't go there and do this and, 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 and whatnot, then, you know, God is going to, you know, deal heavily with you. That's not the God that has saved us by grace. But there will be those who will behold the King, you see. There will be those who will behold the King in all of His beauty, in all of His glory, when He returns to fulfill prophetic Scripture. Verses 17 through 19. It says, Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. I don't know about you, but if you stop there for just a moment, and I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm going to really go fast here in a minute. But I don't know about you, but, but, but I want to see God in all, of his, in all of his glory. I want to be able to see him in all of his beauty. I believe God has given us a lot of beautiful things to see in this life. But none of them can compare to the beauty of God, to the beauty of the Lord, to the beauty of His holiness, to the beauty of His glory, to the beauty of His person. Oh, there's a lot of things that are beautiful in this, in this world. Every one of you here is beautiful. Every one of you is beautiful. God created you that way. But you didn't know I was going to tell you that tonight. But you are. You see, we'll look in a mirror. We look at all the imperfections because we see them every day. God looks at the heart. God knows you. But even still, all of our combined beauty could not even come close to the beauty of the Lord. I want to see that beauty. And I want you to see it. But more than that, I want you to want to see it. You see, this, this again brings up that issue of, of going beyond theory into practice. And living our lives as if we really believe 
what God says. That we really trust that God will do everything that He says He will do. Now, now I've gotten off the beaten path here. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the lamb that is very far off. I'll explain that in a moment. Your heart will, me- will, will, will meditate on terror. Listen carefully. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? Then he says, you will not see fierce people. You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. So they will see the beauty of the Lord when He comes. Zechariah tells us about that. Revelation chapter 1 tells us every eye will see the coming of Messiah. Him whom they pierced, they will see. They will also see the land promised by God to Abraham and his seed. Literally, not... uh, land that is very far off as if it's a land way far away literally it means far extended or as the uh, English standard version if you have that version translates the phrase a land that stretches far it is talking about the length of the land it is talking about how 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 vast the land is this is certainly a reference to the land that stretches from the river of, of Egypt to the Euphrates and all of that will be the inheritance of Israel when they are restored to God That is what they're going to see. We're not talking about that little strip of land called Israel today. It's about the size of Rhode Island. We're talking about everything that God promised. That is what he's saying here. As for verse 18, we come to a passage that the Apostle Paul quotes from when he expresses the limitations of the human mind in regard to divine ministries. There in verse 18 he says, Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Paul uses a little bit of that phrase when he, when he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, notice, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the, the understanding of the prudent. And then verse 20, where is the wise? Paul borrows that from this passage here. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so the revealing of the king will be the greatest glory for the believer. This is the contrast that that, uh, Isaiah is giving us. The revealing of the king will be the greatest glory for the believer, but it will be the greatest terror for the person who has set their heart far against God. It will be worthless for them to look to the scribe. It will be worthless for them to look to the one who weighs or the one who counts towers for help because there will be no one to help them. Even though the northern kingdom was demolished by the Assyrians, which were the fierce people of obscure speech, by the way, the southern nation of Judah would be delivered. God says to them, you will not see the fierce people of obscure speech. So God was was just telling it like it is. Jerusalem, you see, will be ruled by King Jesus, the Messiah, as we look at the far fulfillment of all of this. Jerusalem will be ruled by King Jesus, the Messiah, in the near future. And so a serious defeat by the Lord really was only a dress rehearsal for His triumph over the Gentile world system that will one day gather together to destroy the holy city. So notice... I mentioned Zechariah, Zechariah 14, and I know we've read this before. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the horses, uh, I'm sorry, the houses rifled, not the horses, the houses rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then, notice, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. You see, God, when he sends Jesus, Jesus comes the second time in all of his glory, but he comes with a sword and he comes to settle. The first time he came, he said, I did not come to judge. When he comes again, he comes to judge. We're still living in the time of grace. We're still living in a time when people can come to the Lord, 
Come to the Lord. Come to Him because when He comes back, He will judge. And the city of Zion will be delivered and it will be blessed. Let's look at the last five verses now. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, is the, but there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. It is interesting that Jerusalem is one of the few great ancient cities that was not built near a river. But we know that's going to change in the millennial kingdom according to Ezekiel chapter 47, which you can read by yourself. And even Psalm 46 mentions that, for it says in Psalm 46 verses 4 through 7, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. And then the nearly sunken ship that was Jerusalem, which is verse 23, as you, you see the images that Isaiah gives us here. A nearly sunken ship that was Jerusalem will be brought through the storm. And the weakest of the Jewish people will be able to reap from the spoils of the dead army. The lame will gather the plunder. By the way, one point on verse 22. Here we find that all the forms of government will be focused on and centered in the Messianic King. Notice, the judicial branch of government, the Lord is our judge. The legislative branch of government, the Lord is our lawgiver. The executive branch of government, the Lord is our King. Hey, He is all and in all. He will save us. He is our salvation. Look at our, you know, we have, we have a good form of government, don't we? Judicial, legislative, ex executive. <laughs> the, the form's good. <laughs> it's all the people that are over there, that uh, you know. <laughs> the ones that we say we vote in and we vote out, and, and they go in and do whatever they want to do anyway. But here, God is everything. He's the judge, he's the lawgiver, and he's the executive. He's the king. Well, lastly, let me, let me finish this up. There will be no sickness and sin in the holy city. No one will say, I'm sick. Christ will be their redeemer. Christ will be their savior. And the nation will be forgiven their iniquity. Once they were described this way. Remember this? Isaiah 1, verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, a, na a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. That's how they were described at one time. But when they see Messiah and they trust in Him, this is what they will experience. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What an unexpected blessing that we can be forgiven our iniquity. You see, man today is sick with sin. But when God has forgiven us by His stripes, we are healed. What a joy and a blessing that the majestic Lord brings that unexpected blessing. We don't deserve it, but He's blessed us with it. Vain is the help of man, but he who relies upon the living God need never fear any foe, whether human or demonic. I want to leave you with this verse of Scripture. 1 John chapter 5, 
verses 4 and 5. I want to leave you with this passage. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith in God. Verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who overcomes the world? But he who believes. You see, this isn't a matter of believing in theory. It is a matter of believing in practice. Let's pray.